Okay, so here we are. We're on part three of our series, The Heart of the Bridegroom. And the, the point of this series is really this. It's really a reminder to us to step back and to look at the heart of Jesus and then to think about what's he really like, what's really going on in his heart and allow how he is to impact the way we think, the way we feel and the way we live. But the key point is to look at his heart, look at what's going on inside of him and let that impact us. Because here's the thing, we have so many things that, that they give us perspectives you know, all the time. Like the world is always feeding us perspectives. Your, your social media account is always feeding you perspectives. People's opinion are giving you perspectives. Your, your experiences, your challenges, the difficulties you go through, they're all giving you a perspective. And oftentimes we don't realize that the perspective that we have through our experience, it clouds the way we think about God. And so what we need to do is we need to look at him and hear what he says about himself to get the proper perspective so that when we approach him, we're thinking about him in a way that's worthy of him and not in a way that's inferior of him. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're trying to do with this series, just these three weeks. We've just been looking at his heart and wanting that to inform us. And here's what I, here's what I know. If we think about him in a way that's not true of him, when we approach him, we will approach him in a way that's not how he desires. Because if we think of him as cranky, or we think of him as mean, or we think of him as you know, ready to judge us or smash us, we don't think of him as a bridegroom God the way he describes himself, we will be scared when we come to him. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a reverence for him, but I'm saying there is a whole wealth there's a whole ocean of desire in the heart of God for his people. And he wants us to approach him freely and to know him and to experience him in a deep way in intimacy. That's why he made us. That's why Isaiah 54 says, your maker, your creator is your husband. You tie the two together and you understand this. He made you to marry you. Everybody wants, their, everybody wants to know their purpose. I'll tell you your purpose, to marry deity. You thought, it was, <laughs> you thought it was about having some ministry. God made you to marry you. That's why you're alive. All right, let's look at this. It's a little recap. Is it, it's 640 already. Look at y'all, what did y'all do? Golly. All right, don't look at the clock, she said. That's my word to you, don't look at the clock. Let's go through it, all right. Roman number one, his name is his nature. Just a reminder, just recap. Now when Moses, he said, show us your glory, show me your glory. God said, you see my glory, you see my face, you will die, but I will pass before you and I will declare my name to you. And when I think about this, I love this, this passage, Exodus 33 and 34, because Moses asks for everything he can get from God. He goes, I want, 
to see and experience all that you are. Show me your glory. And oftentimes when we think of the glory of God, we think of it as his power, or we think of it as his beauty. And I will say that the the glory of God is the exterior manifestations of God, his power and his beauty for sure. But the glory of God, it also, and probably in in a greater way, includes the depths of God, who he is on the inside. I don't wanna just you know, sort of see him as like a fireworks display. I want to know what's moving in the heart of the one that's exploding in front of me. You see what I'm saying? And so the Lord goes, you can't see my face and live, but I feel like God's answer to him is I'll take you to the brink. I'll I'll give you everything you can receive from me and not die. So I'll pass before you and I'll declare my name to you. And therein we see this connection between the glory of God, the name of God, and what does he do? He gives attributes of his nature. So in the name of God is the nature of God. In the name of God is the nature of God. And that's a major portion of the glory of God, who he is, the depths of him. His glory, is the, it's the depths of the nature of God. So look at this in Exodus 34, and I'll, I'll do my best to, well, I'll just stop and comment, I have to. I was gonna say, I'll do my best to read through it, but nah, that ain't gonna happen. Think of verse five, it says, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. That verse, that phrase, he stood with him there. Moses ascends the mountain, the glory cloud appears of fire and lightning and beauty comes down And Moses is standing with God. Now, just remove Moses from your biblical character mentality and just get it. This is a man. This is a person. It's a human being. And and see, for me, when I picture this passage, sometimes I just, I think of God just sort of showing up and blowing by Moses real fast and just saying his name, but that's not what it says. It says, he descended in the cloud and the cloud is burning and whirling and it's standing there and Moses is standing there with God. We don't know how much time is passing here. Oh, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. We said Yahweh, Yahweh El, that's what he said to him. What did it sound like? He heard God say his name with the voice of God. He heard it with his own ears. Yahweh, Yahweh El, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I would encourage you, make Exodus 34, five through seven a continual meditation. Because when all these other things are feeding you perspectives and they're trying to speak to you about the nature and the knowledge of God, Exodus 34, five through seven plumb lines you so you know what he's really like, regardless of your circumstances and regardless of the opinions of others. So, so come back to Exodus 34 and lock it down. Let it get down in your heart. 
And that way you'll, you'll be reminded in times when you're praying to God and you feel like, do you hear me? Do you see me? He goes, of course I do. I'm tender, I'm merciful, I'm compassionate. And you get, you get the understanding of who he is. Well, we found out that he also says he's just because he doesn't clear the unrepentant guilty. And in there's verse 14, we, we, we dealt with this last week, but I just want to reemphasize it. He gives us the summary statement of his nature, of his name. He says, the Lord your God, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now, what's interesting to me is this. This tender God of mercy and compassion, of forgiveness, of, of long-suffering and patience, he and, and justice, righteousness, goodness, and truth. And, and he takes that package and he says, if there's a summary, it's like he's saying, if there's a summary, the word is jealous for you. I'm jealous for you. And we talked about that last week, the, the way that's demonstrated. He's not jealous in, in the sense that he's envious or insecure. He, he's not jealous in that he's covetous and, and wants your stuff. He's jealous in a much more incredible and powerful way. And here's what we, we said is that his jealousy, it's not specifically like an attribute. It's just, it's just a hardwired reality of his nature. In the same way that God is love, God is jealous. And so when he looks at you, he's jealous for you. He doesn't want to share you. He, he, he desires you. He kind of thinks like this. He made everything and he owns it. And he wants what's his. And he kind of thinks like this. I bought you with a price. My son that shed his blood and I bought you and you're mine. And so we see his jealousy demonstrated in, in, in three phrases that I pulled from scripture. You are mine, worship no other, and vengeance is mine. And, and the way I broke it down is this. When he says you are mine, it expresses this fierce possessiveness that God feels about his people. I don't want to share you. You are mine. And when he says, worship no other, it, it gives us this expression that he expects our loyal love. He doesn't expect us to be sort of flirting with other gods while we're you know, supposedly worshiping and married to him. And, and then he said, vengeance is mine. And that tells us about how he is going to bring retribution on all those who harm his beloved. You know, I, I was thinking about this and you know, if you mess with a man's wife and that guy gets upset about it, you probably are due whatever he does and says. But if there's one guy whose wife you don't want to mess with, it's Jesus. Don't mess with his wife. That's the word to ministers. Don't take the affections that are due Jesus and, and point them towards yourself, ministers. Jesus is jealous and he will not share his bride. All right, so with that in mind, I wanna look at Hosea and look at Hosea's story so that again, we can look at the heart of God and understand who he is and allow it to impact the way that we think, the way that we feel and the way that we relate to God and to others. So uh, 
Hosea's story is really unique. Hosea is a prophet who not only has the message from the Lord uh, for the nation at the time, he is the message. And it's just such a unique story. So just to give you the backdrop, Hosea is prophesying at the time that Uzziah is king. And, and Hosea, <clears throat> the northern kingdom during Hosea's time, they're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping demons. And they have their false high places, their false holy days, and their false idols that they're worshiping. 10 tribes of Israel have begun to, and have lived worshiping in an idolatry. And so Hosea's prophetic ministry starts with a real shock. Here he is, he's just a regular guy minding his own business. And the first thing the Lord says to him is, I want you to marry a prostitute. That's like, get behind me, Satan. I rebuke Jesus. Let's just say this, just in case you look crazy. If you feel like that's the Lord for you, rebuke. Just rebuke that. That ain't the Lord. But for Hosea, it was. Look at this in verse two. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, when he began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And I don't know how you picture it, but this is kind of how I picture it. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the business of that day was agriculture and trading, and, and they would come, and they would come to the marketplace, and they would bring their, their, their goods, and they would buy and sell. And, and, and I just picture Hosea just, you know, being in that agrarian society, just coming and bringing his, his wares to sell in the marketplace. And I just imagine this. I imagine him showing up in the marketplace, looking over and seeing Gomer. There she is, she's a prostitute. And just, you know, he's, he's, he's a good Jewish man. He's, he's trying to, to be godly. And he, and he shows up to do business and he looks over and there's this, this prostitute. And I, and I just imagine him carrying a little judgment in his heart. You know, what's she doing here? That, that woman, she just needs to like, just quit that lifestyle and just get right with God. I mean, don't we stone harlots anymore? Like what, you know, I can all, I just imagine. He just has this negative, you know, I just imagine he has this negative uh, attitude towards her. There she is, some harlot out here in the marketplace. What's she doing here? And I can imagine he just comes day after day and week after week. He's just carrying a judgment until one day he shows up and he looks over at her and this little ray of mercy hits his heart. And he starts thinking, you know, man, whose is she? Who does she belong to? Where's her father? Does she have any brothers? Where are the men that are supposed to be taking care of her? Where are they? And I can imagine this, this ray of mercy is hitting his heart as he's looking over at Gomer and he's just thinking, gosh, this is... Something's wrong with this. This is a wrong situation. And I can imagine he goes on for a few weeks like that, and then he comes up another day, and he looks at her, and all of a sudden, he's able to look past the filth. He's able to look past, you know, this, this harlot's exterior, and he sees that's a person. She's a real person. 
She has real thoughts and, and feelings, and, and his heart just begins to grow tender. And whereas he was judging and critical, now he's, his heart's broken, and he realizes and sees her in her need. And that probably goes on for a little while until one day he realizes somebody has to take care of her. Somebody has to intervene for her. Somebody has to step in and try to bring justice for her. And the Lord speaks to him, marry her. And no longer is he just going to be a prophet with a message out of his mouth. He's a prophet with a message that is his life. His life is the message. His life is the testimony because he's not just telling people what God is like. He is showing people what God is like. He marries a harlot. I just look at that. I go, God, what are you doing? What are you doing with this guy? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure growing up, he thought, I'm going to be a good Jewish man. I'm going to have a nice Jewish family. We're going to have good heritage of serving the Lord, have children who serve the Lord. And, you know, we'll sell stuff and, you know, be good. And now God has got him marrying a harlot. And then he gives him three children by Gomer. And each one of their names, he gives each of them a name that's a prophetic declaration. First one is Jezreel, saying God is going to avenge the blood that was shed in that place, Jezreel. And then he gives them these, these other two names. Now, these are not the sweet names that you want to tell your, you know, name your kids. You know, this is not, let's call her Hannah. Hannah means grace. Or, you know, th- this is not that. This is the exact opposite. We're going to name them Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami. Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami. Lo-Ruhama means no more mercy. And Lo-Ami means I'm not your God. And what's he declaring over the nation of Israel? What's he saying to them? He's saying this, you have departed from me. You've worshiped other gods. Now I'm going to give you your fill of worshiping other gods. I'm going to let you know what it's like when you are at the mercy of other gods and other idols. He goes, I'm going to withhold my mercy and I'm going to let them give you what they give. So he goes, I'm going to step back and I'm going to let you receive from them what they offer. And what happens to Israel? She comes under judgment. She, she goes into diaspora. She gets spread throughout the nations. The northern kingdom gets destroyed by the Assyrians. And Hosea had to name his kids that. Lo Ruhama, Lo Ami. And God goes, and I'm going to show you what it's like without me as your God. But here's how the Lord does. Even in times of discipline, he declares his kind intentions because before the end of the chapter, he says, but in the place where it was called that they are no longer the children of God, he goes, I will be their God and they will be my people and they will love me and they will serve me. And he declares that he's going to have them no matter, no matter what. And so what we get in Hosea 2 is this. 
We find the nation worshiping idols, worshiping demons, and God says this. He goes, I'm going to hedge them in with thorns. I'm going to make it so what they're experiencing at the hands of their other lovers, they, they will not want to continue to experience that. That they're going to turn to the left, they're going to turn to the right, and on every side there's going to be pain and hardship. And he says this, he goes, and then... I will allure her to the wilderness. And it's in that place that I'll begin to woo her heart and bring the nation back to me. Have you ever noticed in times of disobedience, the disobedience causes you pain and then the next, very next thing, you find yourself isolated? Because he allures you to the wilderness. And all of a sudden you're in pain and you're alone. You ever done that one? That's a bad idea. Don't do it, but it's what we do. Because that's how God deals with us in our disobedience. He's not leaving us forever. He's just allowing us to feel what it's like when we're not with him. And so there she is in the wilderness, hedged in with thorns. And he goes, and it's from there that I begin to allure her and woo her. And then I will begin to bring fruitfulness to her in that place. And she will realize in that place of of being in in solitude and in isolation and and in pain, she'll, she'll say to herself, it's better when I was with the Lord than with these idols. And she'll turn to me. And then the Lord goes from there. He goes, it's from there. I will take the names of the Baals, the, the, the masters that had enslaved her, those, those false gods. I'll take those names from her mouth. And in that place, she will call me husband instead of master. And what we have in Hosea is this picture of the God who is relentless in his jealousy, even though his people are in harlotry. I want to say something to you. If you have a prodigal in your life, God has not given up on them. He is relentless in his pursuit of them. And here's what happens at times. We'll have a prodigal. They will go off the deep end. They'll get just messed up. Their life is just a wreck. And we're praying and praying and praying and praying and nothing seems to be happening. And it's just getting worse. Let me tell you something. Your prayers are enabling it to get worse. What? what? Yeah. So that they will come to the place where they realize it was better for me before. It's better for me with God. And so often they've got to hit the bottom and it's in that place of just destitution that God begins to allure them and remind them. It's the prodigal son. He's eating the slop and he remembers, it was better for me in the father's house. That's how the Lord deals with us when he's gently wooing us and correcting us because of disobedience. And he takes the names of the bales from their mouths and he puts his name, he says, I'm married to you. I'm your husband. I'm not letting you go. I'm jealous for you. And so often when we have a prodigal person in our life, we think, well, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering? And he goes, you have no idea. I want them more than you do. I'm after them more than you are. The old Pentecostals used to call the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven because he is hunting down the prodigals and they can't escape him. 
because he's jealous, he's relentless. He's after them. You trust him. You know his heart and you understand that he is not willing to share them with another and he is going to pursue them until he has them again. And he goes on to say to Israel, I will make you my wife. Yes. See, that doesn't sound like, the, like I said a few weeks ago, that doesn't sound like, will you marry me? No, that sounds like, I will make you my wife. I am not going to put up with this. You're going to be my wife. And so here in this story of Hosea, we just, we just see God's relentless desire for people, his unwillingness to share us with another, and then we finally get to the, the place where at the end of the chapter, I mean, at the, end of the, at the end of the book, he says this about Israel, and I'm on page two now. I'm just sort of kind of preaching it, preach teaching it. But he says this, his final word, one of his final words to them is, he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? Which Ephraim's just another name for the, the northern 10 tribes. How can I give you up? I, I, can't, I can't give you away. How can I hand you over? I'm, I'm not giving you up. How can I make you like Admon, Zeboim? Those are two cities that receive the judgment of God. He goes, how can I make you like that? He goes, no, no, my heart, and this is what always, when I reflect on God and how he thinks and feels about me, this is one of the verses I always come back to. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. See, I don't know how you think God thinks about you. I think too often there's this accusation about God that he doesn't really care. He's a little disinterested. Your problems aren't big enough. You're not important enough. That's just lies. His heart is churning for you. His heart is churning for the prodigal. His heart is burning and yearning, that, that churning is a yearning, a longing, a desiring. And, and this is what we have to recognize, that though we can't see him or feel him at times, he's never disinterested. He's yearning for us. His heart's burning for us, churning. And it says his sympathies, that word is his mercies. He goes, I'm just looking for the opportunity to be merciful to you. I just want to be generous and forgiving and kind. And that's how he ends the story with, with Israel with, through Hosea. And here's what I wanna draw out. Look at Roman numeral th three. In, in Hosea two, we have the terms of the betrothal between God and his people. And this counts for Israel for sure, but it counts for us because we're the church, we're the bride of Christ, and we're gonna marry him, and these are the terms of the marriage. Now here's what's an interesting thought, and for those of you that have been studying and looking at the bridal paradigm and the Song of Solomon for, for years, I wanna, I wanna throw this thought to you because it's something I, I've been staring at these, these thoughts for years and years, but something I hadn't seen till this week. The nature of God that he declares in Exodus 34, those attributes, 
they're the same words, virtually almost all the words are the same as the terms of our betrothal. In other words, when he says, I'm going to marry you, and he goes, I'm gonna marry you, and here are the terms, I just, I, he goes, it's not according to you, it's according to me. It's by me that we're gonna be married. And so what he weaves into our union with him is the very nature of himself. What I mean is this, though we may have had weird and maybe difficult experiences with human marriage, our marriage with God, it's not on any human terms, they're all on heavenly terms. It's not by any human nature, it's all by divine nature. And the terms of our betrothal are the very ingredients of the attributes of God. Here's the point, when you're joined with him, you're actually joined with him. The attributes of his nature are what we're actually engaging and being joined with when we're married to Jesus. It's incredible, it's absolutely incredible. So look at this, look what he says about the betrothal. Verse 19, and I'll, I'll just land it the next 10 minutes. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. This term, know, it's not in your notes, but I'll just mention it. It's the same term that God uses when he describes a man shall know a woman. It's the most, most intimate interaction a person can have. He says, this is how you will know me. We will be intimate at the deepest level. You will know the Lord. See, I don't know where you think this thing is going, but we are, all, we are all on a crash, a collision course with union with deity. Let that plumb line the way you live day in and day out. Let that inform your Monday through Friday and your Saturday and Sunday. You're gonna be joined with deity. He's from forever. He's to forever. He doesn't end, he doesn't begin. He is alpha, he is omega. This is your destiny to be joined forever with him and you're gonna know him. And I just, oh, I don't even, I can't even, my words so fail when I, when I begin to try to unpack what it means to know him. Think of it this way. I'll give the short, just a short little version. He's infinite, yes? We all agree? Day one on the other side. You've gotten the upgrade, your body is glorified. You don't die in his presence is what that means. Every pore of your being is filled with glory. You're standing before him at the pleasure epicenter of all created order. In his presence is fullness of joy, at his right hand pleasures evermore. There you are before him and you're looking into the face of eternity and eyes of fire are staring back at you. 
and every pleasure center in your being, it pins to 10. And in one second, in one millisecond, you drink in more of the nature and the knowledge of God under the spirit of revelation than you ever experienced in 70, yea, 80, yea, 100 years of life on this side of the veil. In one second, everything pops, all, all the, the meters pop to 10 and then break because you're, you're peering into wonder and majesty and beauty unfortold. You're peering into infinity and it's staring back at you and he wants you. And in that moment, you come to grips with this, that whatever you thought your little life was about, it's about a whole lot more. It's about a whole lot more. Those eyes are looking through you and you've never felt so known and so welcomed and so fulfilled. And you look into him and you don't know how to describe it, but you see infinity because it just keeps going. The beauty keeps going. The colors keep going. The wonder keeps going. The majesty keeps going. This is one second in. It's gonna be a fantastic first impression. <laughs> you make it through day one. You're worn out with pleasure, but not really because you've got a glorified body so you can take as much as you can possibly handle. You, you go away, maybe you go to bed, you don't actually sleep for sure, you don't because you've got the glorified body, but whatever, you come back day two and he's staring at you. And you're filled with wonder and joy and beauty and the, the molten love that's pouring out of him for you. I mean, it's just rocking your world. Well, you're gonna do that for a million years. And every day, it's deeper in the knowledge of him. Every day, a greater experience of the majesty and the glory of him. A greater day and mercy becomes more real. Goodness becomes more real. Truth becomes more real. Power and beauty and everything becomes more real every single day, a million years in. And in a million years, you're a million years deeper into the knowledge of him. And because he's infinite, you're not one step closer to exhausting him. You shall know the Lord. That's what you're made for, beloved. That's what you're made for. Whatever the little, piddly, inconsequential things, the little foxes that are spoiling the vine of your life, the little dogs that are nipping at your heels, all those things, well, you're not good enough. Your purpose hasn't been fulfilled. You haven't done enough for God. All that, that's foolish. Because what you are to God is valuable and wonderful and desirable. That's what you are to him. He, he longs for you. He wants you. And so then he says this to you even today. He says, I will betroth you to me. You're gonna marry me. And I'm gonna weave you into my nature. You're gonna be joined with me in unity. He says this, he goes, I am merciful and gracious 
And he says of our betrothal that we'll be betrothed in loving kindness and compassion. These are virtually the same words when you get behind it and look at the Hebrew. They're virtually the same words. I said, Lord, what are you trying to say about your merciful, gracious, compassionate, loving kindness? What are you, what are you trying to say? He goes, tell them I'm gentle. I'm gentle. I'm tender. See, our problem is we, we do everything in dichotomy. We very rarely think in gradients. Everything is on or off, black or white, win or loss. And he is, it's not even proper to say it, but he is degrees and gradients and, and depths at, at levels and, and, and multifaceted ways that we can't even comprehend. He's fully jealous and fully tender. And those seem so in opposition, but they're not. It's who he is. And so often we think of him as stern. We think of him as, as harsh. And then we go, well, when I sin, he's, he's stern and he's harsh. No, no, he's still tender to you in your weakness. Here's what he's saying to the nation of Israel who are worshiping demons. He goes, I will betroth you to me in loving kindness and compassion. Remember Hosea, he looks over at Gomer and there's a point where his heart breaks. And he begins to enter into the nature and the knowledge of God and the way that God feels about the broken. Remember Jesus, he's in the dirt with the harlot. He wants you, and he's tender towards you. Too often we think that God is standing aloof, disinterested, requiring us to jump over some holy hurdle that nobody could jump over. And then when we fall and fail, he goes, I knew you weren't good enough. We, we imagine him to be this stern, angry, crass God. He's so tender. He's so gentle. He's so easy to come to. He's so easy to come to. I'll betroth you to me in loving kindness and in compassion. And I remember that psalm. It said, your gentleness has made me great. Your tenderness, your tenderness has lifted me up. Then, I mean, see, he calls himself long-suffering. The New American Standard uses slow to anger. And then he uses the term aras to describe the terms of our betrothal. This term aras, it's the word betroth. Now, here's the thing. That term is only used to describe a virgin who was betrothed to a man. It was never used to describe a woman who'd been married before or a woman who'd been in fornication or adultery. Only used to describe a virgin. And God says it over and over and over to the nation that's in harlotry. I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. What's he describing? He's saying, I will justify you and make you innocent. You'll be pure to me. I will look at you as pure because I don't see you as a harlot. I see you as pure. 
I betrothed you to me. See, we have weak love. We fail often. Our performance is pretty bad sometimes. We don't do well. And we imagine that somehow, that if we perform poorly or if we sin, that somehow God's turned off and he's only in love with us because we do well or we live righteously. Let me tell you something. He loved you before you chose him. And he's tender to you in your weakness. It doesn't mean that we just go on sinning willfully after having knowledge of the truth and calling it grace. No, what it means is this, that you, when you fail, that he is there faithfully wooing you back into relationship. He wants you ever still. He loves you in your weakness. He's committed to you. He says he's long-suffering. And that word, that English word, doesn't depict what the Hebrew word really is. Because the, the Hebrew word is slow to anger. That's a better explanation because you and I, when we wait a long time, we start suffering. But God, he doesn't suffer when he has to wait. (laughs) You know, we have a lunch appointment, coffee with our friend. We get there and we're on time and they show up a little five minutes late and like, oh, the American margin. All right, five minutes, five minutes, that's fine. Five minutes, I'm like, seven minutes. Where's he at? Ten minutes, we're like, does he not know I've got things to do? i got stuff to do. Ten minutes late. Fifteen minutes, you're like, just bring me my food. Just bring my food. I will eat my food. I don't care if they get here. I'm just going to eat. At 20 minutes, your friend texts, I'm, I'm on my way. On your way. You better get, you get here. Come on, I'm waiting. 20 minutes in, you're just going to text me now? We're suffering. And your friend finally waltzes in at 45 minutes late. You're like, you know, we're not friends now. We're done. If you beg me and get on your knees and beg and (laughs) repent, then maybe we'll be friends again. But 45 minutes? What are you doing? We're suffering the whole time and we're so impatient. God's never suffering. He's never suffering when he's waiting. He's perfectly at peace. He's really good at waiting. He's from forever. He's been around forever. He is love and love is patient. He's infinitely patient. He can outweigh you. You try to run away from God, you try Try to goof around with God and I'll, well, I'll sneak around. He's like, I can wait. I got this. I will let you go experiencing all the things that are going to mess you up. And I'll just wait. And when you come to your senses and come back, I'll be here with a smile. Because I'm gentle. And I'm patient. And I call you my own. And I betroth you to me. He's infinitely patient. He is gentle. He is patient. D, he is righteous. 
See, he says of himself that he's abounding in goodness and truth. And then he says to us that we're betrothed to him in righteousness. Well, what, what, to me, that's a great little definition. Righteousness, goodness, and truth. And I like to think of it this way. So often we think of righteousness in this, in this way, like it's the handcuffs that you have to, you know, be handcuffed with so that you don't ever sin. <laughs> you know, put me in a straitjacket so I never sin, and that's righteousness. No, no, righteousness is when God takes of his beauty and holiness and he puts it on you. And you feel beautified. You feel forgiven. You feel cleansed. And you go, I'd never want to forfeit this. He set me free. There's this imparted righteousness that comes on you. He says, I put white robes on you. And when you begin to understand that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You don't want to jack that up. You want to stay pure. You want to stay beautiful for him. I've never seen a bride in her wedding dress on her wedding day running around playing in the mud. You ever seen a bride out there like throwing the football in her gown before? What? Somebody said, yeah. I'm like, what? Most brides want to keep it white. That's righteousness. When you have the desire to keep it white, to keep it clean. He says, I'll betroth you to me in goodness and righteousness and truth. E, I'm just coming in for a landing right now. Worship team, you can come on. He says, I keep mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's what he says of himself. He says to us, we're betrothed to him in faithfulness. Beloved, he's faithful. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's always there for you. He's never going away. He's never going away. He is faithful. This is our bridegroom, and he is just. He says, I by no means clear the guilty. And he says, we're betrothed to him in justice. He is just. He is righteous and just altogether. I don't want a bridegroom who sort of just winks at sin and sort of just gives a pass to debauchery. I want one who's good and true altogether through and through that he is just. I want to know that he's just on the inside. And I want that one fighting for me. This is who we're betrothed to. This is our bridegroom, God. All I've given you, by, by the way, right here, this uh, Roman numeral three, this is just a menu. This is, this is, I'm not feeding anybody. This is the menu. You go back and you get fed yourself. Go take this to prayer and take this and get the Bible open and look at these verses and cross-reference the nature of God and the terms of our betrothal and let the Lord speak to your own heart about who he is as a just bridegroom, as a faithful bridegroom, as a tender and gentle bridegroom. And let it impact the way you think and feel. And let it impact your prayer life. Let it impact the way you look at other people. I, you know, I tell you, one of the most powerful things, getting the understanding of God who desires intimacy with people and specifically with me, one of the most powerful things that it's done for my heart is it's moved me out of judging others. Because he loved me when I was a wreck. He loves me in my weakness. He loves me tenderly when I perform poorly. 
Who am I to judge someone else who's a wreck? See, that's, that's like love 101, when we can see past the wreck and see the person that God desires. Because that's how he looks at us. He looks past our wreck and he sees that, that person he made that he wants and he desires. Let it inform how you live, how you, how you treat others, how you, how you engage with God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand.